Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We are now at week 28 in our series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. We can't go into God's Word without going to Him once again and asking for His blessing. So let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are gathered here in Your presence with one another to hear You speak to us through Your Word and by Your Spirit. So speak, O Lord, and would you enable your people to listen, not just with our ears, but with our minds and hearts. And may your truth indeed be planted deep within us, changing us from the inside out, for we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, I've got a question for all of us this morning. How do you like being asked a question? Are you glad for the opportunity to be asked for an answer? Are you glad for this opportunity to speak? Or, rather, do you get defensive? As I was reading and thinking about this passage, Mark 1 excuse me, Mark 8, 1 through 21, I was struck by the sheer numbers, the sheer number of questions that Mark records in this portion of the narrative account of the life and ministry of Jesus. All but one of the questions come from Jesus. The disciples, the religious leaders, together in this passage, ask one question. Jesus asked all the other questions questions. Now this seems to be sort of odd, doesn't it? I mean, after all, Mark in his opening verse lets us know that he's writing about who? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if Jesus is fully divine as well as fully human, why would he of all people need to ask questions? Doesn't he already possess complete and comprehensive knowledge of all things? Now speaking of questions, we are here in Mark what I like to refer to as the shortest catechism. Here we are at this midpoint of the gospel, not in terms of just the number of chapters, but in terms of development. Thus far, Mark has been seeking to answer one question. It's our first catechism question. Who is Jesus? And so everything we have seen Jesus doing and saying has been put there to help readers gradually see who Jesus is and answer that first question. Now, let's step back for a moment. Why is this important? Why is it important to, to get a handle on this question, on the gospel according to Mark? Well, for us, for us, we've got to all come to terms with the one essential question in life. And the question we will see in a couple of weeks is asked by Jesus himself. And it's not who do people say that I am. You know the question of course is this question, who do you say that I am? 
But it's also important for others because we need to know who Jesus is in order to help people, others, come to understand. It's how parents can teach children, friends can teach friends. We, as it were, can teach one another as we walk together by faith and not by sight. And ultimately, it's that question and answer three of our catechism. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Because when it comes to Jesus, there is no neutrality. Throughout history, people love Jesus or people hate Jesus. There is no whatever when it comes to Jesus, as we will continue to see. Now, if Jesus asks questions not for the purpose of gaining information, after all, what does he as God not already know? Why does he ask so many questions? What is his purpose in asking so many questions? In other words, what do his questions do? Well, I believe we'll see in our text how these questions of Jesus do really three things. They lead to another miracle, they reveal his heart, and they are designed to draw out faith. First, we see in the first nine or ten verses, the questions of Jesus lead to yet another miracle. Look in verse 5 with me. He asks his disciples this question, how many loaves do you have? And that leads to another miracle. Haven't we already been here before? Doesn't this sound familiar? Isn't this deja vu? Well, earlier in chapter 6, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. And here is the feeding of the 4,000. And some skeptics and unbelievers say, Aha! Mark is really confused. He's repeated himself. Well, this critical scholarship says Mark is confused. But Mark, remember, is not just a reporter. He's a teacher he is selective in what he puts in his gospel account for purposes of teaching, for purposes of revealing Jesus. There are similarities, to be sure, between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding here of the 4,000. A large crowd, deserted place, the compassion of Jesus, loaves, fish, thanks, distribution by the twelve, all eat and are satisfied, leftovers are collected, and yet there are differences. They're in two different locations. They're ethnically and religiously different. The first was mainly Jews, if not all Jews. And now it's going to be mainly Gentiles with probably some Jews mixed in. And the size, you may remember, of the 5,000 didn't include women and children. So we're looking at ten or 15,000. And here the word is used, 4,000 people. There's even different words for baskets. These are two separate miracle feeding accounts. So what is the message of this miracle? What is Mark teaching? Well, it's always primarily about Jesus. He is compassionate. He is powerful. He's the mighty creator and he's satisfied. Satisfies. He is the promised Messiah. Oftentimes, one of our opening uh, calls to worship is from Isaiah 55 about those who are hungry and thirsty come and you will be fed without money without price and here Jesus is literally feeding the people he's the promised Messiah he's the bread of life as John will help us understand and like all the miracles 
this miracle points to the identity of Jesus. But secondarily, this miracle is also about his disciples and now about us as well. Remember from our time in chapter 6 looking at the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember that the Lord uses what we have to do what we could not? And what we have, the Lord must bless. And it is only as we serve the Lord that His blessing is given and His blessing increases. Yet here in particular, Mark is showing us how great is human spiritual blindness. Because we will see that the disciples continually fail to apply what they know of Jesus to new situations. I think it's important that we see ourselves in the disciples Mature believers learn that their own hearts will continually doubt Him again and again, though we are thrown into situations in which He previously showed us His great power and His care for us. They, they can't remember what Jesus did with the 5,000 in a similar event here. My friends, our spiritual memories are extremely short at times. That's the nature of our hearts. Even aspects of the nature of new hearts and redeemed hearts because look at Deuteronomy 8, which was our Old Testament reading. God's people forgot. They didn't remember. And so we see how this question of Jesus leads to another miracle, another picture of redemption. And now next, in Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees, We'll see how, this, how the question of Jesus reveals his heart. And we see that if you want to start in verse 10 or if you start in verse 11 through verse 13. The questions of Jesus reveal his heart. Listen to this question that Jesus asked in verse 12. Why does this generation seek a sign? And notice also we read of a deep sigh in his spirit on account of the attitude underlying and driving this demand. Here, what is being revealed is not Jesus' heart of compassion, but rather his heart of profound anguish at the bitter opposition of these men to himself and his mission and his message. It's a mourning heart of Jesus, a grieving heart. Again, verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? This generation, a biblical expression, and here specifically it's being focused on the Pharisees. The Pharisees come arguing with, testing, and attempting to trap Jesus. They demand to be given a sign from heaven, not just a miracle, but a conclusive sign directly from God to confirm that the promise had been fulfilled. These men are challenging Jesus instead of welcoming Him. Their request for a real sign is getting in the way of their own responsibility. They are in essence blaming Him for their lack of faith. They're blaming Him and not themselves. Their real problem is this. Jesus does not look and act like the Messiah that they were expecting. He doesn't look like He's fulfilling God's promise for a Savior. But notice here, Jesus answers His own rhetorical question. 
Jesus does not perform signs on demand, especially for those who are testing him. What Jesus is saying is that another miracle will not produce faith in those who have already closed their minds and have their minds made up that he is not the Messiah. He cannot give them what they seem to want, evidence that moves, removes uncertainty so that there's no need for risk or commitment. Because my friends, faith that depends on visible proof is not faith. They ask for a sign which would compel belief while all the time they are rejecting the many signs that are inviting belief. No sign would ever convince such hard-hearted men. Therefore, Jesus does not give them one. The Pharisees reject Jesus, and so Jesus rejects the Pharisees, and he walks away. He leaves them. Who is Jesus? This is another picture that we need to understand. Jesus will walk away from people. Compassionate? Absolutely. But when he meets the hard-hearted, the obstinate, the stubborn, those who are rejecting instead of welcoming him, he walks away. How about you? Let's don't move on before we ask ourselves this question. Once we have evidence, any demand for proof is really a way to avoid commitment. I mean, is anything capable of being proved with certainty? Things we become certain of cannot be proven until we commit to them. Let me ask you the question. Most of you have been on the side of the pool, right? Ready to jump in. And mom or dad or some other adult children is with you and they say, jump in. You see mom there, you see dad there, you see older brother, friend there, ready to catch you, right? You believe they can catch them. But my friends, as we know, faith involves that commitment, that trust. It's not just knowledge, it's just not an assent, but it's actual trust. And when you jump and trust that the person on the other end will catch you and keep you safe, there's faith. There's faith. And these Pharisees, they are wanting some assurance, some kind of certainty that Jesus is not going to give until they commit to Him. He walks away. So we've seen already now how the questions of Jesus lead to another miracle. They reveal His heart, His heart of anguish and sorrow and grief. And now we'll see how a succession of rapid-fire questions is designed by Jesus to draw out faith. Look with me at verses 14 through 21. He's back in the boat with his disciples. And bread is mentioned, and it introduces a discussion between Jesus and his disciples. In verse 15, we read some interesting words. And he, that is Jesus, cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out. Beware. Two verbs literally meaning see. See. 
but we'll see that they are in many ways still blind. And since they're talking about bread, Jesus uses an everyday ingredient of bread as a metaphor, as a picture. Leaven or yeast. It's a tiny amount of leaven or yeast that affects the whole lump of dough into which it is mixed. And we see that throughout Scripture. And most often, all but one time, leaven is given a negative um, understanding. It's bad. Now, in um, Matthew's account, we read directly that the, the leaven is the teaching of the Pharisees. And in Luke's account, we read it's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But here, Jesus doesn't exactly lay it out in those specific terms, because what we have here is a figurative description of the self-centered self-reliance and the formalism and skepticism of both the Pharisees, who are religious, and Herod, the irreligious, as we've seen in the past. And at root, their hearts are more alike than different. The evil, hypocritical, and unbelieving hearts of the Pharisees and the Herodians influenced their whole lives. The bottom line, what is Jesus saying? Beware of the leaven of unbelief or in the words of the quote, the something to think about quote, J.C. Ryle, beware of the leaven of false doctrine because unbelief is a false doctrine because everybody's got a doctrine. And even people who say, I don't believe, absolutely they're believing. They're finding their trust and their hope and their assurance in something. What is Jesus saying? Beware of the leaven of unbelief. Beware of the leaven of false doctrine that will affect anything and everything. And it starts out little and it's subtle and over time it comes to overwhelm the bread as it were as it rises or to overwhelm the person. Now this discussion of the disciples reveals that they don't understand. The disciples still don't get it. They're more concerned, as it were, with their next meal. Their thoughts are still dominated by material concerns. It shouldn't surprise us thus far. The disciples are dull. They are slow. They take the term literally, showing their ongoing inability to grasp spiritual truths because Jesus is using this to picture a spiritual truth. Notice in verses 17 through 21, eight questions of Jesus. Jesus is interrogating his disciples and yet with perfect patience, Jesus begins to pastor his disciples by asking them a series of questions designed to bring them to an understanding of what he's saying. He led them from the content of their conversation, no bread, to their spiritual condition. And what was that? What was their spiritual condition? Blindness and continued hardness of heart. Slowly, Jesus brings to the front of their minds what he had done in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And one way to understand that these are two separate events is Jesus Himself refers to them as separate events. The disciples had seen His compassion for those in need. Could they not trust Him 
to care for them too? So what we see before us is a picture of unbelief. The desire to hold on to one's own life and rule it rather than abandon oneself to the rule and provision of God which is right there in the boat with them. Unbelief and the Christian. Are we heeding the warning, the strong caution? I think sometimes all of us think that the only, tra- only tragedy of a major proportion could create hardness of heart and spiritual blindness in our lives. Um, some of us have experienced great loss. The unexpected death of a child. The unexpected leaving of a spouse. The, 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 uh, somebody um, uh, steals from us. And we think that's what's going to harden our hearts. And to be sure, those are certainly life circumstances that can lead to that. But here is something as simple as, hey, you forgot bread. How are we going to eat? That can lead and reinforce hardening of hearts. Unbelief and false doctrine again are like leaven. They're small but influential. They're apparently insignificant but all pervasive in their influence. Here, Jesus' role in teaching and training the twelve comes to the foreground. His question to them is a reproach for failing to recognize that the one who miraculously provided for 5,000 and the 4,000 is fully capable of taking care of them. My friends, the incomprehension of the disciples is a warning for us. In addition to reading that something to think about quote that's uh, in your order of worship, here's what one other commentator says when looking at this passage. Even if we are committed Christians, we should assume that we have a continual obtuseness as well, that obvious lessons are being missed, and that we think we know a lot more about Christ and ourselves than we really know. It should lead us to humility, to a lack of spiritual arrogance or know-it-allness, to a willingness to repeatedly revisit biblical texts and truths, to be very teachable and accept rebuke graciously. Did you hear that? Christians are to be people who are very teachable and accept rebuke graciously. After all, isn't that one of the purposes of Scripture? Being breathed out by God and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness? Now, is this rebuke complete and total? In one sense, yes, But yet, yet there is hope that true faith will emerge. How? Look with me at verse 17 and verse 21. Verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Look at verse 21. And He said to them, Do you not yet understand? The disciples are slow to understand, but they are not hostile to Jesus. The Pharisees, on the other hand, reject Jesus, but the disciples, what do they do? They follow Him. The story is not over. 
They don't understand what will it take to get for them to get it. What will it take? What does it take for any of us to get it? It takes a miracle. It will take divine intervention. And that's what Mark is setting us up to see next week in the healing of the blind man. So let me ask you once again, how do you like being asked a question? Do you see it as an opportunity to give an answer? Or rather, do you put up your defenses? Do you see it as an opportunity to grow? Or do you harden yourself? These questions of Jesus were a means of bringing His disciples to faith. And as we read and study God's Word, we don't so much question the Bible as it, God's Word and His Spirit, question us. We approach the Bible in humility, not arrogance, because it is the standard that changes us, not the other way around. Now, although our text is full of questions and even ends with a stunning question, there is, I believe, nonetheless, an underlying statement that we need to remember. In other words, let's don't forget this. And what is that? God is establishing and growing the faith of those who follow Jesus slowly but surely. I think it's difficult for all of us to appreciate how slowly at times the wheels of salvation turn. We expect to possess now and at once what it took a lifetime to accumulate. In our own Christian lives, it takes so much time and so much experience for the Lord to accomplish His purposes in us. Over and over again, it's the same lessons. The Bible's teaching, think about the Bible's teaching concerning time and the passing of time. Ponder how much time it takes for God to achieve His purposes. To be sure, He can act immediately and instantaneously, and we have records of Him doing that, and some of us have experienced that ourselves. But consider how even divine omnipotence works gradually. Faith and Christ-likeness is not built in a day, a week, a decade, but over a lifetime. Are you still praying for an unbelieving family member? Keep praying. Are you still battling with besetting sin? Continue to battle. A former professor of mine said something during a class, and a few years ago I emailed him and said, hey, this is what I thought you said. Is this what you said? And he was gracious to respond. And this is what David Pallison wrote me. He says this, God seems pleased to work in the lives of individuals on a scale of years and decades over a lifetime. He seems pleased to work in His church on a scale of decades and centuries. Remember, God is establishing and growing the faith of those who follow Jesus slowly but surely. And so because this is the case, do not be discouraged, but rather be encouraged. Why? Because as slow as heart and as backward as they may be and as we are, His patience is never exhausted 
with them, with us. Jesus did not give up on Peter and He hasn't given up on some of you. Though some of you have been slow and hard-hearted at times. Amazing patience. Astonishing kindness of the Lord. The Lord, as we heard from Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. And how do do we fear God? We follow Jesus. And finally, not only be encouraged, but be encouraging. Just as the Lord is patient with us, be patient with your brothers and your sisters in the faith and keep pointing them to Jesus as you yourself continue to look to Jesus. And my friends, we still are on the road where we walk by faith and not by sight and we need one another alongside us. To be sure the Lord is with us, His love will never fail. We may not know the way to go, the hymn says, but oh, we know our guide. But the Lord has been pleased to put us in the company of others who are slowly but surely following Jesus. Be encouraged and be encouraging. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for these questions of Jesus. These questions that seek to draw faith from us. And to be sure, Father, You are the one who gives us faith. We can't well it up within ourselves, but oh, can we exercise faith. You give us faith, Father, but we do the believing. You open our ears, but we do the hearing. You open our eyes, but we do the seeing. Father, enable us as your struggling, slow, at times hard-hearted people to keep looking to Jesus. May He and the glory of His grace and mercy melt our hearts and, and, and push the stubbornness away. Oh, Father, we thank You for these questions of Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. gives us the faith.